His opinion means a lot to you, doesn't it? Yeah. I push people beyond what's expected of them. I believe that is an absolute necessity. You won't be able to give me the time of day because you have bigger things to pursue. That's exactly my point. You are a worthless, friendless piece of shit whose mommy left daddy and who is now weeping and slobbering all over my drum set like a nine-year-old girl. Start practicing harder, Neiman. Why would you let him get away with what he did to you? Because I want to be great. Are you a rusher? Or are you a dragger? Or are you going to be on my time? You're going to be on your time. Keep playing! Keep playing! Keep playing! Hello and welcome to the Movie Robcast. With me, your host Rob Daniel, and I'm very happy to say that I'm joined as always by my esteemed and resplendent co-host, Mr. Rob Wallace. And as always, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Excellent. And excitingly, today we have a special guest. Our friend, Tessa Scott, is joining the podcast today. Uh, So Tess, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Rob. I'm really excited. It's my first one. So, yeah. And I think it's fair to say... Welcome aboard. Indeed, welcome aboard. And I think it's fair... (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. We decided to throw Tess in at the deep end and do this over Zencaster rather than all around a table. But Tess, what is the film that we're talking about today? Uh, So it is Whiplash, and it's something that I've actually been wanting to see for ages. When it first came out, um, I saw that it was getting such good reviews. And I don't know how I just missed it. Just never really got around to watching it. So yeah, I'm very pleased uh, to have seen it. I actually just watched it this morning. So it's very fresh. Oh, fantastic. So regular listeners to the show will remember that on the last episode, we said that we would be talking about Blue Velvet. After some further discussion, we thought actually in these times, it might be a bit more fun to do Whiplash. So we are going to save blue velvet for another time maybe when the world's a bit cheerier we will (laughs) unleash that but yes i think that whiplash is a really really good one to talk about rob you are a bit of a fan of whiplash aren't you yeah as been has been said i think it was something either either my second or third film number two or three in my uh, top 10 films of the previous decade what are the other two adventures My, my number one was manchester by the sea and given that i can't remember what the other number two or number three would have been i'm fairly sure whiplash was in second place Okay then, so Rob, would you like to tell us what Whiplash is about? Shall I do the IMDb or the Google synopsis? Well, the IMDb synopsis is pretty good, so let's go with that. Go with the IMDb synopsis, okay. A promising young drummer enrolls at a cutthroat music conservatory where his dreams of greatness are mentored by an instructor who will stop at nothing to realise the student's potential. I mean, that's, that's an alright synopsis, it kind of misses the emphasis, I think. This is basically a battle of wills between a young music student and his tyrannical teacher, who is uh, astonishingly played by J.K. Simmons. Yeah, well, you don't really see, they say, the cutthroat music conservatory. I guess you, the whole music conservatory is just represented by J.K. Simmons' character. Well, that's the thing. I, I got the impression that the music conservatory itself is obviously very competitive, 
but the antagonist is very much J.K. Simmons. It's not presented as being a a, a, a toxic environment on the whole. It's it's very much his his presence in it. That's yeah. Would have been interesting to see what the other teachers were like, or I don't know. At times in the in the film, I thought I kind of couldn't decide if I wanted them to give me a bit more of the school itself, or of uh, Neiman, or of Fletcher's characters. It was quite like focused and single-minded as a film and then sometimes I thought oh it's great that it's doing that and then sometimes I thought oh I feel like I need a little bit more here. The um I think you you got a bit of his original teacher before he got moved into sort of Fletcher's elite class. Oh yeah. And uh and and I like how it kind of suggested that Fletcher doesn't really have any respect for this other teacher. Basically strides into the class, takes over, looks at the sheet music the teachers the that the other teachers use and I think he all he says is oh cute. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting that that you don't really see the school for very long outside of Fletcher and that he seems to come to personify just how hard the Schaefer Academy, which is where they're studying, which I assume is a fictitious school, that he comes to personify just how tough an environment this is and just how ruthless it can be. Yeah, I found it quite surprising that it wasn't based on a true story. I didn't read much about it before I watched it. And the whole time I was thinking, oh, yeah, this is definitely... um Definitely must be a true story, and then only researched afterwards that it wasn't. I think it's kind of loosely based on uh, Damien Chazelle's experiences, but uh, I think very loosely based. Yeah, in the audio commentary, he talks about, uh, so the writer-director Damien Chazelle, who would go on to do La La Land and First Man. Yeah, I didn't realise this was him, actually. I only found that out afterwards as well. Yeah, it's uh, this was quite a calling card kind of movie for him when it played around all the festivals around the world and was a sensation but yeah he was a drumming student when he was younger he was a jazz drummer and he does talk about having conductor teachers who were incredibly ferocious um and there was one in particular who seems to have been a bit of an inspiration for fletcher the jk simmons character but on the whole it yet it is an original story i I think i've Sorry, uh, you, you first, Tess. Uh, I was just going to say that um, I was really pleased to read that he was uh, a drumming student because while I was watching it, I felt like it had been directed by someone that knew music very well. And I felt like the musical theme was in the dialogue, like the rhythm of the dialogue and the editing and the sound. It was just so beautifully done. And then even obviously the scenes of drumming, I thought someone must have, or I'm sure a few people involved that really knew the craft. I think also with the musical films, I can't say I've seen one about drumming in quite the same way. And it's an interesting instrument to do a film on, I guess, because it's, you know, unlike piano, it kind of often doesn't just Uh, work on its own obviously you know there's drum solos and stuff but yeah I I thought it was an interesting one to focus on really good I do think drumming is yeah is always kind of presented as being some sort of subsidiary in the band it's Ringo Mm. it's it's the band member that you make the joke about and oh sorry you, you you go Rob Oh, no, I was going to say that's really interesting because, um, yeah, watching it this time, I've watched it a few times, watching it this time, I could just see how much the drummer just provides the foundation for the rest of the band. Mm. And Phil Collins, I think he said that the drummer is the goalkeeper of the group. Um, You can have a bad band with a good drummer and they'll still sound okay. And there's a few times when you can see in this film that they're taking their cues from where the drummer is and, and the beat that he's laying down. And I thought, oh, this is, yeah, that you can see why in a way, why Fletcher is just so hard on the person behind the drum kit because he is the one that sets the entire rhythm and tempo for the piece that they're playing. I wondered how uh, Miles Tiller 
learned the drums for this role if it was completely new to him I don't know if either of you know know about it but he I mean he did a really good job of acting like he knew drums very well yeah, listen to the audio commentary. It's funny, it's with Damien Chazelle and J.K. Simmons, was supposed to be with Miles Teller as well. But it seems, from what they're saying, that he was a very late-in-the-day no-show. So they are constantly kind of making fun of him throughout the whole audio commentary and uh, and just saying all these horrible things about him because he's not there to defend himself. They oh my also, goodness. But they also say that he is great and it was like, yeah, absolutely fantastic. It's funny that you say that because while watching this, I just wondered what had happened to Miles Teller because he went through, I think after Whiplash and I know he was in, um, I don't know if his breakout was The Spectacular Now, but I remember watching that and thinking, oh, this is such an interesting actor and he just seemed to be in everything. And I can't think of what he's been in recently. He's gone really quiet. And I remember maybe a year or two ago reading a really unflattering article about him in, I don't know if it was in Variety or Esquire or something. And it was just ripped him apart for just basically saying he was an absolute dick and basically ripping him to shreds. So it's funny that his, you know, his dickishness kind of comes through in the audio commentary as well. Well, that's interesting because they, um, sorry, Rob, there's, um, there's just a moment where on the audio commentary, yeah, they're talking about him and saying, yeah, and he's like, yeah, he was a complete pain in the ass to work with. Da, da, da. Oh. Um, and J.K. Simmons says, but you've signed up to work with him again, haven't you, Damien? Because, of <laughs> course, Miles Teller was going to be the Ryan Gosling character in La La Land. But then I think quite close to shooting, he changed him out for Ryan Gosling. And I think that caused a little bit of bad blood. But, um, but yeah, he was in a film called Bleed for this, where he played a boxer that was based on a true story that was he was good in that that's the thing is that I think he's a good actor but I did think that I thought I haven't seen him for the past few years so hmm. I think I was in about what 2016 I mean I think he did War Dogs the same year and the year before that was uh was Fantastic Four I don't think he's in any way to blame for that <laughs> uh, he's, he's in the new he's in the new Top Gun he's in Top Gun Maverick I saw that which, yeah uh, he will make a comeback um, Oh, okay, yeah. So he's. Winning. But yeah, I I I, th- I read the same I, I I read the same article. He just comes across as arrogant, and as you say, a bit of a dick. Yeah, and you know, somebody somebody who's sort of you know uh, trying maybe also trying to be a dick. Maybe because he was quite like still young and new to fame and stuff. I from the article, I got the sense that he was he was trying to be cooler than maybe he is, or covering up maybe insecurity or something. It's kind of interesting thinking of the character that he plays in the film as well. Yeah. Well, to answer your original question, he was a drummer. He was a drummer in a band. He was a rock drummer. And jazz drumming is very, very different. And apparently the way that you hold the sticks is completely different. You hold, I think, the stick in the left hand in a very, very different way. So he basically had to relearn how to play the drums. And yes, and apparently he did it very well. And he looks very authentic when he's playing the drums. And J.K. Simmons also studied music when he went to university as well. And um, well, he he was going to be a composer, not a composer, a conductor. And oh his, wow! Because uh, his 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 dad was a music teacher. His dad was a was was a conductor and a music teacher. Sure. I watched an interview with him, and apparently, when he was reasonably young and sort of you know doing a lot of theatre, the only reason that he used to get cast is because of his singing. Because apparently, according to himself, he was a terrible actor. <laughs> Okay, so in terms of the film, so it was shot in 19 days. It was one of those films that Damien Chazelle said that it went around a lot of studios, like a lot of people read the script. Everyone passed on it because it was about a jazz drummer. And they said, right, and your film ends with a 10-minute drum solo. (laughs) (laughs) We're not going to be making that. So they shot a short film 
as a way to uh, to drum up support and to show the kind of thing that they were going to do. And that then played the festival circuit and in its own right became like a bit of a sensation on the short film festival circuit. Have you seen that? Yeah, it's on YouTube. It's, uh, it's also on the Blu-ray. It's basically the scene where the Miles Teller character, Andrew, it's his first day in Fletcher's music class. So when he has the chair thrown at him, yeah. it's that scene, basically. And yeah, it's interesting because there's a couple of people from the short that then appear in the film. So J.K. Simmons is the music teacher. Uh, the Miles Teller character is played by someone called Johnny Simmons, who is no relation to J.K. Simmons. And I think he's someone that you'd recognise from stuff. There's also, is it Nate Lang, who plays the drummer who's originally in Fletcher's class and is really, really angry all the time and looks really angry that Andrew was coming to the class. So he's in it. And the guy that plays Metz, so C.J. Varner. So Metz is the guy that gets shouted at and hounded out of the class in that first lesson. Yeah. Um, And he apparently has become quite a cult character because of that, because of that scene. So I think he's got a bit of a following now as as that character. And yes, he agreed to come back and do the film as Mets and be shouted at again by J.K. Simmons. Hmm. So it's one of those, they shot it in 19 days. It was filmed in L.A., although it's set in New York. That's quite incredible, 19 days. I mean, how long does it take to usually shoot a film? Like three months? Yeah, I think it all depends on the size of the film. But I think that this sort of film, they would have probably wanted an extra five days at least. It does sound like it was quite a tight shoot. Miles Teller talks about Damien Chazelle having been being incredibly efficient with the amount of coverage that he was shooting. You know, they'd sort of they'd do a couple of takes and then they'd move on. And initially, apparently, Miles Teller wasn't entirely sure whether they were getting enough coverage because, you know, they were doing sort of bare minimum. So it's one of those things where you're not quite sure. It's like either this director is a genius, you know, is exactly what they want or they're really inexperienced and they're going to regret this later. Film won Best Editing, so you've got to assume they probably got enough coverage. <laughs> okay, then. So uh, that's the kind of groundwork for the film. So, Tess, would you like to give us your thoughts on whether you enjoyed Whiplash or not? Yeah, I really, really liked it. I liked that it was quite, even though earlier I said I kind of flipped and flopped and wasn't sure if I if I liked how single-minded it was. And I don't know if insular is the right word, but I think that made it quite different and things that I've seen Miles Teller in before, I've kind of always liked him. I think he, he brings a kind of vulnerability and intensity, and I, I think he did a really good job. And also, obviously, J.K. Simmons' character was just really fascinating. I thought it was going to go one way, to be honest. The first half of the movie, I thought it would be about him kind of coaching Neiman, Fletcher coaching Neiman and and making Neiman into this incredible drumming superstar and then halfway through when he tackles him on stage and then gets dismissed from the academy and then there's the lawsuit I kind of just thought oh is this where this is going completely through me and then towards the end when they're kind of back on stage together I still at that point didn't quite know which way it was going and I really liked that and I thought it was an interesting view on this kind of like abusive figure of Fletcher and how he's trying to get the most out of his students. And the whole time it had me thinking, does he love the music as much as he loves, you know, abusing people? Is it really about the music for him? Or is he also getting a lot more joy out of abusing people than he probably would want to admit? And that kind of balance 
I found quite interesting, even when he spoke about the death of a former student, I wondered, like, he was obviously crying. I thought, he's not really crying over the loss of life. He's probably crying over the loss of musical talent in the world, or maybe a bit of guilt. So yeah, I I thought even though the storyline, I guess, was quite simple, there were so much, so many layers and so much that you could read into it. I mean, that's totally up my alley, just trying to read what characters are going through and what was the, the thinking around them. Yeah, completely. I think it's one of those films that it's fascinating every time I watch it. And I think I've seen it about four times now, just actually watching the film. And the character dynamics kind of shift every time I watch it. And so this time, for example, when I watched it, Andrew, so the Miles Teller character, was less sympathetic than I had thought him before, even before Fletcher gets his fangs into him, because of the ambition that he has. Is uh, He's so laser focused on this one thing he wants to do to be this great drummer that there's elements of arrogance even before he starts having this war with Fletcher uh, Rob what do you think I think actually that's a really interesting um, point Tess about um, to what extent Fletcher is using or uses the music as a justification for the abuse um, because obviously I, I do think obviously you get you get very clearly that he's deeply passionate and when it, when he's listening to the music and tearing up, like the only moments I think where Fletcher seems remotely human are ones of vulnerability, so usually surrounding music. Mm. We're talking about Miles Teller. I think he's, I think he gives an underrated performance in this film. And I think the reason that that performance is underrated is because it is put against J.K. Simmons. That year, you know, he won he won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor, and the other the other you know the other contenders that year were Mark Ruffalo for Foxcatcher, Edward Norton for Birdman, Ethan Hawke for Boyhood, and Robert Duvall for The Judge all of whom in a different year could have and would have won it. But sort of going in, there was no doubt, I think, that Simmons was going to walk away from it because he's so ferocious and so controlled in this film that it's absolutely astonishing. Technically, it's remarkable. The Oscars that it won outside the acting were sort of technical, best film editing, best sound mixing. And Chazelle is... The director, writer-director Damon Chazelle, is clearly somebody with a real appreciation of just technical virtuosity. It's in this, and it's in La La Land, and it's in First Man. I think it's in First Man to a degree, maybe almost to its detriment, because that film ends up fairly or otherwise it was sort of dismissed as being slightly too cold. Mm. Yeah, I didn't really agree with that. I thought it was um, it kind of matched the Neil Armstrong character, who was quite remote and reserved. But I actually thought that First Man was very moving. I think you're right in terms of Damien Chazelle is a great technical director, but it's always at service of story. And in this film, like yeah, he kind of uses slight slow motion sometimes, but he, you know, he doesn't use things like freeze frames or voiceover. So it's one of those where everything kind of mirrors on the soundtrack and in the visuals the emotional state of the Miles Teller character. When that scene when he's having to rush to the cons- uh, to the competition because the bus has broken down, the drums there are just the confusion in his head, but it's all conveyed on the soundtrack through drumming because that's just his obsession. So yeah, I do think that Miles Teller does... Yeah, it was slightly overlooked because uh, J.K. Simmons just gave such a force of nature performance. For me, the scenes where he's running late are actually the only ones in the film that are less convincing to me because they feel like plot contrivance. The scene where he gets up and his alarm hasn't gone off or he's already slept through it and he has to rush to the, the conservatory for six o'clock. So that's when Fletcher's told him to get in there and he gets there and realises the class doesn't start till nine. It's just, you know, a head game. Or, or obviously when he's, you know, the bus breaks down, when he's en route to the concert and that leads to him, you know, he rushed, loses his sticks and he gets in the car. Those elements to me are the least successful of it because they're the most plot focused. They feel to me slightly contrived. That's true. 
I didn't think about that while I was watching it, but I guess like he's so obsessed and he's so focused and he's so disciplined in practicing. Like he would set a, you would think he would set his alarm and be there on time. Like he does have a few mishaps that, yeah, kind of go against the meticulousness or, or how seriously he takes everything else. Yeah, I, I just didn't buy that somebody that focused and dedicated wouldn't be there, wouldn't have like set five alarms or wouldn't have booked a hotel there the night before to go and stay there to make sure he's definitely there. Tess, what did you think of that moment when he has to go back and forth and it's all becoming incredibly hectic? Um, you back and forth trying to get his sticks and be able to do the performance. Yes. So at the time, I guess I was still thinking that it was a true story. And I think when his car got hit by a bus, I thought, I mean, I was completely shocked. I think I gasped out loud. And then I thought, well, you know, it's over. And um, he's kind of got out of it, at least. Like, if he's late, he's got a really good reason. And then he just crawled himself out of the car and started (laughs) running off with the sticks. And I thought, this is outrageous. Then just sat there on stage, like, bleeding profusely. And the fact that Fletcher let him just even give it a go I I thought was really surprising so I guess I think the film did push the extremes quite a bit I I found it hard to imagine that someone would have let him just carry on in that state where clearly he had been beaten up or, or hit by a car or something but I think I was so drawn in by the intensity of it I find that movies like this can do that where you just the way that it's filmed and the drumming kind of drew you in right from the beginning and the editing and everything feels really close and intense. And then it's almost like whatever happens, you're there and you're going with it. And it's just this world where people are insane. So you can kind of go along with the insanity. Uh, it's interesting. I think that um, Giselle was actually involved in a car accident during shooting. Right. <laughs> um, and the, the scar on Miles Teller's chin in the film comes from the fact that he was involved in a serious car accident back in like the 2000s. So that's where the scars on his face come from. No, oh, right. Wow, this is a whole film of people's like life experiences coming out through their craft. It's, <laughs> each person yeah. seems so like attached to this film in interesting ways. And also wanting to relive the worst moments of their lives. Yes. <laughs> capturing it forever on film. Um, I... I agree with you, Tess, in terms of the intensity and also the fact that you are so, you so believe this character's absolute commitment to being the best drummer that even a car crash isn't going to stop him from getting to the recital, to enter the competition and to play. And I think it shows kind of the cruelty, but also the drive of the Fletcher character that even though he can see something's happened, he lets him go ahead because he's the best drummer that he's got but he doesn't actually realize how injured he is um how injured the andrew character is but our friend tom uh, as rob and me have a friend called tom the film just lost him at that point afterwards he said if a ufo had landed i wouldn't have been surprised at that point because it just seemed to lose control i thought that was in keeping with the character but he just thought that the film had just become too out of control I think just after that, it could have lost it for me. So then when that whole scene happened and the kind of crescendoed into him just rugby tackling Fletcher on the stage. And then afterwards, where you see that he's obviously no longer in the in the school and he's talking to the lawyer or you see the letter where he's been dismissed. I've, yeah, that for me felt like a little bit like a, oh, oh, is that where this is going? And I felt like you had kind of been taken on such a journey. It could have lost me there, but then I think it kind of picked up again. I think what I found a little bit unrealistic is how that made him just give up, like he packed away his drum kit and was going to just give up on this lifelong dream. 
I don't know, that I thought, I wondered if that was realistic. I don't know what you guys think. I I kind of got that because at that point it did seem to him, I think, that there was no chance that he, he's, you know, he's just been expelled and his passion and his and his sort of has absolutely been crushed and, and he just can't basically bear to have any of that stuff around him and i i really like the little the moment where he sat there watching the video of himself as a kid with his first drum set just clearly taking such joy in it and this thing that he used to love and care about so deeply and was utterly just twisted and corrupted by fletcher yeah i kind of think that as well and to your point tess about the aftermath of that scene after he's rugby tackled him on the stage and in real life miles teller cracked two of jk simmons ribs doing that so when you see that tackle it actually injured him because it was such a hard hit but i think that the fact that there are consequences after that and like a lawyer gets involved because this is a really really serious thing that's happened it kind of grounds the film again but yeah i do think there's a whole thing here about that fletcher's like a vampire he takes someone's passion and he sucks the passion out of them and he sucks the joy out of them um, and ultimately corrupts mm. and poisons them so that they completely lose the joy that they had for this thing. Because no one looks happy to be in that oh. band. They all look really scared and miserable the whole time. Yeah, the most miserable jazz band ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I mean, everybody's on edge. But it's, it's interesting in the scene at the end with a professional band that everybody, relatively speaking, seems quite relaxed. And Fletcher seems much more approachable because obviously he can't just bully these guys. Yeah, it's not, it's not that student-teacher dynamic that can be so abusive sometimes, I suppose. What I wanted to know was, I guess this came out in 2014. That was before the Me Too movement, wasn't it? Yes. So I thought, like, obviously, Fletcher's incredibly abusive. And I guess, I mean, in this day and age, shouldn't be allowed to treat people like that for any reason. And I kind of thought also that's what you would feel at the end, that this guy was just awful and abusive and it's not okay. But then I guess that end scene where you kind of see that, I guess his his method has worked because Neiman is this amazing drummer and they kind of have this uh, connection. And I thought that was really interesting because it, it felt like it vindicated Fletcher's abusive behavior and, and basically said, oh, well, his teaching method works. And in this current day with Me Too and people being so aware of people abusing others in positions of power. I thought that was an interesting ending and I wasn't quite sure how I felt about it. Rob, what's your take on the ending? Because this is something that the film got a lot of commentary around in terms of what does that ending mean? Is it a validation of Fletcher or isn't it? And yeah, I've got some opinions around that. But Rob, what do you think on that? I think on one hand, it is, it is a validation of Fletcher in terms of, you know, Neiman does achieve musical genius. But there's, there's actually one one line I, I picked up earlier, which I'm not sure I'd ever spotted before. I think it might be at the end of the first class where uh, he just turns to Neiman and says, start practicing harder, Neiman. And it's like, I'm almost wondering, like, is that all it would have taken? Just Neiman going away and practicing loads. <laughs> like 90% of the practicing that, that Neiman's done, Fletcher won't have been there for yelling at him. Is it actually all it had to do be was a conversation where Fletcher made sure that everybody was actually doing their homework? <laughs> like, 
It's interesting that because the whole thing about Bird, because it seems as if Fletcher has based his entire teaching style on the fact that Bird, who Charlie Parker, was that his real name? Yeah. He was a jazz musician. He once had a cymbal thrown at his head and was humiliated and then went away and you know, practiced for a year and came back. I also, yeah, I thought, okay, that's one story. That's one person. <laughs> You're like, your whole life is based around this or your teaching method. Absolutely. And not everyone and I, has the same. Yeah. Sorry, you on, Tess? No, yeah, no, that's what I was going to say. Sorry, you had a, another follow-up point. Well, no, it was just the fact that, yeah, watching this film, it's like, it seems as if Fletcher is right in saying you have to practice at this and you do have to take this seriously. But it seems to me that what he's missing, crucially, is the humanity that then can bring a level of genius to Andrew's playing. And he needs to have some time away from Fletcher and just out of this incredibly toxic milieu that is in to get that humanity back. So he then phones his ex-girlfriend, Nicole, who we'll talk about in just a minute, to apologise to her for his behaviour. And when he gets off stage, when he walks off stage, completely humiliated because Fletcher's ambushed him and has said that they're playing a different piece of music so he doesn't know what they're playing. When he walks off stage and his dad's there and gives him a hug, and then he goes back on stage after that, it's like, well, if his dad wasn't there to give him a hug, I think he would have just walked out and his life would have been over. I think there's a level of humanity that he has to get back and and be shown by other people how to get that back that then actually means that he can go back on stage and be this great drummer. I'm... I had a, I almost had a different reading of the scene with his dad that's actually, I think, a lot crueler, is that all, all the abuse that Fletcher gives him around is, you know, his mum left his dad because she figured out he wasn't going to be Eugene O'Neill. Does his dad kind of represent the person that he doesn't want to be? And the fact that his dad being there, it's not so much about the, dec- the fundamental decency of the human contact. It's, here's my dad, I don't want to be my dad. Well, that's interesting because that's a lot closer to the original cut. They talk about it on the audio commentary that... There's a scene when his dad has to get through all these security guards to get to the backstage. And then the security guards say to to Andrew, do you know this man? And he says, no, I've never seen him before, and then goes back on stage. So that ties in a lot closer to what you're saying, Rob, in that original cut. Uh, But Damien Chazelle said that he cut it because it was just too much, completely overshadowed him going back on stage and doing this amazing drum piece. So I think there's some ambiguity to that. Yeah, Yeah, I kind of read it in a similar way to to Rob W. I didn't really see much of the humanity at the end. I didn't feel like Neiman was great because he got space from Fletcher and found something else within himself. I feel like he got great out of just pure determination, but then also just wanting to show Fletcher that he could do it. You know, that kind of relationship between the two of I can be what you want me to be. I felt like that in the end, for me, what got him there rather than anything else. And I and I kind of wondered about how the the film was portraying genius, and I think I don't know. There's like this myth of what it takes to be great, or the myth of what makes a genius. And um, I'm I don't know if I always if I buy the myth that the film was selling. Well, that's really interesting because if you guys are thinking that it actually he is rejecting his dad and going back on stage just to basically prove to Fletcher it's like well actually that film is a much darker film it has a much less happier ending and also yes it does then tie into that myth and I think it makes it um, a slightly less interesting film Uh, because the whole point of this film I thought watching it this time and it ties into your point Tess about me too is that this film is all about toxic masculinity and it assumes or um, Fletcher assumes that the only way to get these people great 
is to break them down, to find the emotional weak spots, to basically destroy them and then rebuild them in his image, which is... And to be unapologetic, which I think, again, to, to Rob's point was, for me, the scene in the cinema at the beginning of the film, I thought was really brilliant just with him and his dad, because it was such a good, such great exposition to make you understand both characters. So you had just seen Neiman as a music student and he was uh, saying sorry to Simmons' character and oh sorry and then he starts drumming again and Simmons says he's like a, a monkey you know just playing for him and then we see him with his dad and someone knocks his dad's head with a box of popcorn clearly not his dad's fault and his dad's like oh sorry so you, you get the sense that his dad is this very kind of apologetic character that Neiman is more like in the beginning who then for me it seems like Neiman goes on to reject that side of himself reject that similarity that he has with his dad and he becomes this he becomes a lot closer to Simmons this kind of unapologetic, it doesn't care what it will take to be a genius. I mean, I know there's that scene where he calls Nicole though, but for me, I, I couldn't decide if that was him like finding his humanity or just realizing he's kind of let go of too many things. He's in this really low position. He's not quite as amazing or on track to be as amazing as he, as he thought he would be. Um, so he was just kind of feeling a bit sorry for himself. Wow, this is actually a really, really dark interpretation of the film. <laughs> and it sounds like you guys have had it. I mean, my because my interpretation of, of this film, yeah, is that he ultimately ends up between his dad and the Fletcher character and takes the lessons of both or sort of, you know, he takes the humanity from his dad, he takes the brilliance from the Fletcher character. And that's what makes him great. He can't exist if he just follows one or the other. But yeah, I mean, like, yeah, that's just one reading. And it sounds like you guys have have like a different reading. And uh, so that's interesting. I, I do think that Neiman probably ends up being, you know, at least for a short time, a really good musician. And I think he probably ends up utterly unhappy. <laughs> Like, yeah, I, I also think, got that I think, sense. I think I don't think the film necessarily justifies Fletcher's abuse, but I think it's I think it does kind of it says I think the film does have the viewpoint that you'll have to dedicate every moment of your life to practicing and be single minded and be ruthless, not necessarily ruthless to other people, but that there is still a good chance, you know, the notion that it, you could achieve this thing, but is it worth it? And that Fletcher is just kind of the catalyst that forces. Neiman to confront this idea. And I, I actually, watching the film this time, I got a lot more of um, the kind of psychology at play or the manipulation. Um, for example, with the folder, I'm pretty sure Fletcher takes the folder. Oh yeah, I thought that too. And that also, I think, ties into the slightly supernatural element of Fletcher, that he does look like Nosferatu the vampire with his bald head and he's very gaunt and he's always wearing black. He does seem to take... There is enough time when Andrew's getting the drink from the vending machine for him to sneak up and get it. But it does seem to supernaturally vanish in, in some ways. And also Fletcher's classroom, you get the impression, is underground. It's like there are no windows in there. So it's almost like a coffin. And so again, it just adds to the fact that he seems very vampiric and he spends all his time feeding off the passion and joy of others to make himself stronger and to break them down. It's like, yeah, I think there's that the only way that you can read that scene when the folder goes missing is to say that Fletcher got it. There's the scene with the, the little the, the moment with, uh, with Fletcher when he gets approached by like a, a colleague or a friend and he's really nice. He's he, he's a person to the little kid and being like, little kid, you know, do you want to play my band when you're older? Mm. And then in the scene immediately afterwards, he abuses that guy, calls him Mini-Me. Was that the same and, guy with um, the daughter? And it's, 
No. Or a different guy. Oh. No, no, no. It's, 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 yeah. a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different guy. But I think it's really illustrative of the two sort of sides to Fletcher. The fact that Fletcher clearly is capable on some level of being a person. He's not a complete sociopath. He knows, well, maybe he is, but he knows what, he understands that what he's doing isn't okay from like a social standpoint. He's making a choice to behave like this. And the film sort of, in, to some degree, interrogates whether or not that's justified. One, one of the reasons I absolutely love the final scene is I think it's transcendent in the truest sense of the word because initially it starts off you have the reversal of Fletcher knew it was Neiman who's lost him his job and he's put him in this position where he's going to show him up in front of um, all the sort of the influential music figures and he's never going to have a career. Yeah. And then you've got the reversal after that where Andrew just, you know, goes back on and he starts playing again and he's incredibly good and he's going to show Fletcher up with how good he is. But then the final reversal is that it stops being about either of them and just becomes about the music. Yeah. It just becomes about how good the music can be in that moment. And both of them are just invested in that. And and, and It's such a short... Yeah. It, oh, sorry, you go? No, no, I, I, I totally agree. In such a short... in and, and conveyed, most of that scene obviously is done without dialogue, apart from sort of Fletcher's initial, I'm, you know, I'm, his initial sort of Fredo hug, I know it was you. And I think... Rob and I would both have seen that at London Film Festival and the, the audience applauded and that doesn't, and, and I think I stood and applauded, which does not happen often with festival films. It does more it can, but London Film Festival is more, you go in there, you see the film, you, you leave, you know, you're, it, things don't tend to get rapturous applause. Maybe they do in a, more so when it's a, a musical film. I think the the couple of films that I have seen that have gotten a standing ovation have always been around music. I, I think there's something not saying that the film ending you know wasn't worthy of a standing ovation, but I can just think of the one other one that I was in. It was uh, let me try find which it was now, but it was like um, about a choir, and the final scene was this choir singing. Um, and they were amazing and then everyone clapped afterwards and I, I wasn't sure if it was for the film or just because they felt like they had to. It was a foreign film. I can't believe I, I can't remember it now. It wasn't Military Wives then. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I was about to say, I, I love, I've absolutely loved the, loved the thought of somebody, of a couple, a couple especially accidentally going to see Whiplash because they just think it's a musical. <laughs> they think it's a music film. They think it's going to be have lots of songs in it. <laughs> well, I can imagine a couple going to see a film called Whiplash for other reasons, and then being really, really disappointed that it's about music. Yeah, and it, yeah, instead you have J.K. Simmons yelling, "I will fuck you like a pig." <laughs> which actually was a mistake. It was supposed to be "I'll gut you like a pig," which is actually what they use for TV versions in the States, but he said, I'll fuck you like a pig. But he says that in the short, and it was a mistake, but he wouldn't say it again for the film. So they got that line of dialogue from the short and put it into the film because they thought it was such a good line of dialogue. It's just such a profane, horrible image that they then <laughs> said, well, all right, then, if you don't want to say it again, we'll just use that one from the short. Um, but to Rob's point about the standing ovation, what made it even more special or unusual was the fact that it was a critic screening. And yeah, the London Film Festival, it is very exciting, even in the critic screenings, but it is unusual for a film to get a round of applause at the end. Uh, the Peanut Butter Falcon got one this year. But yeah, when this film ended, I just burst out laughing because I just thought it was just such a joyous ending when it 
crashes out and then you quickly get the credits come up and it's like wow that's it then ah that that was ace what do you mean by when you say joyous that final crash when he does the final flourish on the drums and you get the camera kind of zoom into him it's jit and then it crashes to black and then you just have the credits come up i thought there was such a joy there in terms of how the film was put together just the excitement you can get from watching a absolutely brilliant film it's such a crescendo yeah okay yeah yeah i think the climax of this plays more like more like a sports film it's especially with the blood. I think in my review, I, I compared it to Raging Bull. Um, just in terms... There's, there's a lot of Raging Bull in this film, yeah. Yeah. I ask about your use of the word joyous, just because I, I think at the end, I felt like, I definitely felt that kind of crescendo and, oh my word, you know, it's happening and oh, he's he's done it. He's got it. He's, he's amazing. But I, I couldn't shake the uh, weirdness that I felt about how he had got there and how awful Fletcher was and how wrong it is how wrong his methods are, that it didn't feel joyous to me at all. I think it was joyous in terms of uh, the virtuoso or the virtuosity of the filmmaking. Mm. But I do, yeah, I did have a slightly different reading of it where I think I maybe softened the film enough that I thought that uh, that it has a happy ending. But now I'm going to go back and watch it again after what you guys have said. I'm going to see this. All it is is this incredibly dark film about obsession, which then ties in even more to horror. But because um, what do you and- what do you, you both think it's saying about? Because um, I think that probably happens loads. That kind of a teacher that's abusive but sees that as the best way to get something out of a student and probably often does get the best out of people but then probably by 50 percent can kind of crush people that can never recover. So I guess what you see are the success stories, but I don't know, I, I I maybe wasn't sure about what the film was saying about um, people like that and, and what it will do and if it's worth it or not. I I do think the film is very ambivalent about that because on one hand, yeah, he does kind of achieve this musical coup and my perspective, at least, on what the, on what the film is saying is that you can achieve greatness and you can achieve greatness through practice and through this abuse. Uh, but then you've got to question whether or not it's worth it. Yeah. And again, I, for the first time I did think again, I got the whole, you know, would he have achieved this? Had he just gone away and practiced mm. to what extent Fletcher's abuse, the abuse part is necessary. Yeah. It kind of makes you think that you can't be a genius and be happy <laughs> or, Steven Spielberg would disagree with that, I think, because because uh, he is a genius and I think he's very, very happy. But yeah, it does suggest that in a way that you have to basically sacrifice everything and you have to endure a lot of abuse if you want to become the best at this. But then I kind of think, well, that's because this film, again, it, I think an element of this film is toxic masculinity. It's a very male film. There is one main supporting female character, but she is rejected And that scene where she's rejected, which I think is one of the best scenes of the film, where it just plays on her face when you can see that she can't quite believe what this guy is saying and that he he doesn't understand how awful he's being. Mm. And then the Andrew character is just back into the hothouse of the practice room and Fletcher's awful dungeon classroom. (laughs) And um, That scene reminded me a lot of Social Network. Remember that scene with... uh... Yeah. Yeah, indeed, definitely. Um, Yeah, with Rooney Mara... Yeah. And Jesse Eisenberg, yeah. And I think there's an element of that, that, that there is a critique here in that men will always strive for greatness in a very, very damaging way because they're not very good at multitasking. So they can only do one thing very well. And, and if they want to be the best and they have a talent for it, that it can actually be really quite destructive. 
I thought that was also interesting how he had done this, uh, he had been a drummer since he was young and he had this passion and he was so sure about what he wanted in life and what his purpose was. And then, you know, to talk to uh, Nicole, who wasn't sure about what she wanted to be or what she wanted to study and how he found that so surprising that unlike him, she didn't have this purpose that he was so sure about. And I thought that was really interesting because I, I do think you do get that difference in people, how someone can be so sure of what they want to do and they think that everyone should be like them in that way. But I think it's also, it can be a bit false or I think people can assume that this is what they want, they are meant to do. I, again, I don't know if I necessarily always buy into that myth of genius. Maybe it is true and can be true of some people, um, but I don't know how I feel about that either. Well, I think it's one of those things that that point when he is surprised that she hasn't got a chosen path that she wants to go down was actually one of the reasons why I found him less of a sympathetic character this time because I thought because that scene on their first date when he's kind of grilling her on yeah. what she wants to get out of life and you kind of get the impression that he thinks that she's got slightly less value because she doesn't know what she wants to do. Absolutely. And he gives up on his craft so not so easily. He got flippin' hit by a car and completely yeah. <laughs> abused. But for him, it's how can you be worthy unless you have this higher purpose or you, you know that you're on the road to greatness? If you don't have that, then as you say, you, you're less worthy. But then he kind of gives it up for a period in the film. I guess you could say he always would have gone back to it. But how quickly you can be on this path to greatness and think that you're better than everyone else. And then, and I liked how that can also change very quickly. Yeah, I mean, it's it did take a truck to knock it out of him, but, <laughs> but it's true. Well, not even a truck. It didn't even take the truck. It took, it took Fletcher. It well, that's took, the thing, yes. Yeah, like, he, you know, he, he made it up on that stage and was still playing. And if Fletcher had in that moment gone, you're clearly not okay, get off stage, it's fine. But the way Fletcher approached it, Fletcher's just, you're done. And that's where it kind of, it comes into my idea of that there is a humanity that you need to get to be the best, because if you just go down the path that Fletcher's got, you're absolutely right. You end up having a psychotic break and then attacking the person that you hate and losing everything because of it. It is an ambiguous film in terms of what it's saying, I think, about what you need to do to be the best. And and I think it's one of those things where it's like, well, there are other ways to do this, I think, but you're only seeing this one incredibly charismatic and fascinating villain. Ultimately, because that makes for a better film, really. I mean, it's... Uh... Yeah. I was curious, when I watched it in the beginning, I had a thought, uh, like, what did he see in him? I couldn't put my finger on it, obviously, other than just being good at drums. It, you know, in that initial scene where he's practicing on his own and, and Fletcher comes in, and then obviously from then, he's got his eye on him. I couldn't figure that out. I don't know if you guys, you know, have any thoughts about why he sort of picked him. I think it's the same as the story that he tells about the guy who ended up committing suicide. You know, he saw him practicing. Uh, he, you know, he was having a tough time of it. You know, all the teachers were going, maybe this isn't for you. I mean, he's basically talking about, maybe not quite to the same extent, but he's basically talking about naming at that point. The fact that he clearly sees kids, or sees, sees young guys who have a spark, who have a talent, and his approach to nurture is to absolutely pile on unimaginable pressure. Hmm. Yeah, it's um... so, and, and 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 you can almost imagine that, like, to Fletcher, when Fletcher loses his job because of stuff that Naaman's like, so Fletcher's in Fletcher's mind, that's to degree a betrayal because the way he sees it is, I did everything I could to give you a chance at greatness. 
Yeah, yeah. He's on a revenge path after he loses his job, I think. That's true. One of the things here that I thought, I wish I knew a little bit more about music because... That scene when he's getting the three drummers to just play faster and faster and faster, and he keeps saying that they're getting it wrong. It's like, are they getting it wrong? Or is it that he's a bit mad and it's like only he can hear the flaw in their drumming? And I don't know enough about music to know if that's the case. I thought it was maybe like a test who could just grit through it and go for the longest and show that they would not give up and would put their body on the line quite literally to just do whatever Fletcher needed of them. I I don't think all of them were out of time. I just felt like Fletcher was in, well, was upset because of the news that he had gotten and, you know, about his former student. He was upset, basically took it out on them as abusive people do and was just using that as an opportunity to find who he could push to the limit and would take it. I don't know. Maybe again, that's probably a bit of a dark or morbid reading of it. Well, actually, I think there's a point there because that scene comes very, very soon after he finds out about the student who's killed themselves. And he's clearly visibly upset by that. And you're thinking, well, now is he, because his methods have been questioned, is he doubling down on that? But I was thinking, is something wrong happening here? Or is he just asking for the impossible? And to your point, is he trying to see who will work hardest to achieve the impossible? Oh, yeah, that's totally my reading of it. They, it's interesting because they've each of the drummers, by what I can see, approaches it slightly differently or as a slightly different style or a slightly different technique. And I think he's, as he says earlier, when he kicks the guy out of the band, you know, he wasn't out of tune and he he didn't know and that's worse. Yeah, I think the idea is that basically this is just a gauntlet for them. Mm. He's just going to absolutely run them into the ground and out of this, either they'll break or excellence will emerge. And part of the anxiety in these scenes comes from me that, you know, if these characters who are budding music experts can't tell whether or not what they're doing is correct being in the situation where you're you know where Fletcher's going are you you rushing are you dragging as an audience is just immediately tense because it feels like if it just feels like a nightmare you're like I I don't know (laughs) I have no idea such a great scene yeah I think that's also what's so brilliant about the film is um you kind of feel like you're not always sure quite what Fletcher wants from them. Like, obviously, he wants them to play brilliantly. And they obviously all like cowering and uh, heads down, eyes to the floor. I'll do anything you want. But you don't quite feel like that is what he wants. He, I think in the moments then when Andrew fights back a little, you get the sense that that is almost what Fletcher's trying to pull out of them, that like just being like fighting a little bit more for what you want. But then they also... I guess would never push it too far, like tackling him on the stage is just way too far. So that kind of feeling of like, what do you want from me? And I think never being able to give him what he's asking for. And as an audience, you don't quite know. So you're right, that kind of tension uh, was just throughout the film. Yeah. Yeah, one of the things about this film that it does really well, and it's in J.K. Simmons' performance, but also in the writing as well, is that you're fascinated by Fletcher as a villain, but you're never turned off of the film because he's so awful. And that's quite a fine line to tread because he does say awful things. He says homophobic things. He says some racist things. You never get the impression that he, in a way, believes that or that he would stop someone from joining his band because of their race or because of their sexuality. If they were good enough, it's all about the music for him. And also there's a certain flamboyance to just how awful he is that, is lifted, I think, from the drill instructor from Full Metal Jacket. Have you seen that one? It is very Arlie Ermey. 
But yeah, there are lines of dialogue, and I will dig the sound files out, that are very, very similar in terms of how he shouts abuse at them. It's kind of the same things are being said. trying to do to my beloved car sir i don't know sir you are dumb private papa do you expect me to believe that you don't know left from right sir no sir then you did that on purpose you want to be different sir no sir what side was that private pile sir left side sir are you sure private pile sir yes sir what side was that private pile sir right side sir don't fuck with me again pile were you rushing or were you dragging i i don't know Start counting. Five, six, seven. In four, five. damn it! Look at me! One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Now, was I rushing or was I dragging? Uh-huh. Count again. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Rushing or dragging? Rushing. So you do know the difference! Private Pile, you had best square your ass away and start shitting me Tiffany couplings, or I will definitely fuck you up! Sir, yes, sir! You hear me, cocksuckers? You better start shitting me perfect 400s. Connolly, get your fucking ass back on the kit. Private Pile, I'm gonna give you three seconds to wipe that stupid-looking grin off your face, or I will gouge out your eyeballs and skull fuck you! If you deliberately sabotage my band, I will fuck you like a pig. There is like a military element to this. You do get the impression that they're going into battle and that Fletcher sees these competitions as a war to be won and and stuff like that. So I think that there is a flamboyance to his cruelty that comes from the Ali Ermi character from Full Metal Jacket. Can you, um, can you, just very quickly, can you please include the clip um, of what he says when he's told that Naaman has lost the folder? Um, the, a particular a particular line he says that I can't repeat, but did very inappropriately make me laugh quite a lot. Jesus fucking Christ, where have you been? Uh, we have an issue. Okay, now is not the time. I gave uh, Neiman the folder, and Neiman lost it. Neiman lost it. Yes. The folder is your fucking responsibility, Tanner. Why would you give it to Neiman? Right. You give a calculator to a fucking retard, he's going to try to turn on a TV with it. Now get your sticks and get your ass on stage. I, I, I can't. You can't. It is an offensive line, but it got a big laugh when we saw it at the LFF. And I think, again, it just goes into the flamboyance of this character that it's uh, that he's slightly larger than life. So therefore, there are some things that he says that you don't lose, that the film doesn't lose you because of it. And I don't think the film is saying that it's okay as well. So I think that's what also keeps you going. I think yeah. it's clearly saying that this guy is a monster so when he does horrible things you know that they just awful and you're supposed to hate him i think what's what i really liked is when you see him playing the piano um in the jazz band kind of later on he's playing such a beautiful soft gentle piece and it's just so different it's it's literally the opposite of his character the kind of music that he's playing and it's so hard to believe that something so beautiful could be produced by someone so awful and I think, and and he seems genuinely happy. Sorry, he, he, I think he, and he actually seems like genuinely happy while he's playing. Well, he seems satisfied, doesn't he? Mm, and, and you kind of little, little bit get a glimpse of. For me, that's when I, I felt like he was the most like a human being. He was just clearly a great player and wasn't totally in the moment and loving what he was doing. Very cool scene. 
I think this. I think that Fletcher probably does have friends or like people that he is, you know, would go out for a drink with who are maybe fellow musicians to whom he's probably just a normal guy. He's definitely putting it on in that conversation with Naaman because, you know, when he's at the bar and he invites him to come and play because he's obviously got that agenda because he, he knows that Naaman's the one who, again, who reported him. But it does give the impression of a guy who is capable of being normal. Going back to, you know, him being nice to the little kid. This is somebody who who could, on some level, maybe does have a normal life. Two things there, I think, is that, um, one, the film doesn't endorse what Fletcher says. It may endorse his methods in some ways but it's one of those where it also leaves the humanity in him he is a person he's not just a monster there's actually a lot that was cut out of the film that further humanized him because they didn't want to make him too kind of soft or too conflicted i suppose so they cut out some scenes where he was being nice and just left in a couple of scenes like with the girl and then also when he's upset when he hears about the death of the student I wouldn't have minded a, another scene or two showing a little bit more. For me, when he was crying, I felt like he was crying either over guilt or because of nothing to do with the student, but losing someone so talented. And then with the little girl, I felt like that was just him putting on a face for, you know, his true self was how he is in the classroom. Because I, I can't think that you can be that awful and abusive and that's not who you truly are. And for me, the switch was just being pleasant to people to put on a show. And I think I would have liked it more or it would have, he would have been a more complex character if I had seen a little bit more of either what made him that way or something a, a little bit redeeming. Now, it's interesting that because I think that he would see it as just him doing his job. I think he would recognise why people say that he's been a monster, but he wouldn't agree with it. He'd say, well, this is me doing my job. There is a cut scene on the Blu-ray where it shows him in his apartment at night and there's a picture of a woman and a child there and the suggestion is that he has got a family, but they've walked out on him, which I think would then like tie into the fact that he can be very exacting in his private life as well. But the point about Me Too, I think, is really interesting because it's like, yeah, this was made before then, but he clearly, if he's conducting a band at Carnegie Hall, he clearly is well respected in that world. So therefore he does have friends and he does have people who um he does have very important contacts. But his methods now, yeah, particularly now, just wouldn't be accepted and tolerated. So um it would be interesting to see a side film where all this comes out about Fletcher and all his friends just walk away from him. Well if you I mean people in high places or in powerful positions or, you know, geniuses or whatever they always have loads of people around them i guess it doesn't necessarily mean that they're a nice person to be around or have any humanity yeah if they make money and can pick winners i mean it's basically harvey weinstein and kevin spacey it's one of those (laughs) where he's just allowed to be because he's good at what he does and no one really questions his methods even though they are unacceptable I wonder if there's still a lot of that. And I know you often see it in films about music students or or ballet academies where just like absolutely ruthless coaches or or teachers. Um, And I wonder how much of it actually happens, especially in these days, if people can get away with it or, yeah. I'd imagine it still goes on. It's one of those things where it's like, yeah, there are so many people wanting so few parts that um, I think a lot of people will endure quite a lot of bullying and stuff like that if they think it's going to get them where they want to be. That's also the trouble is that exactly what you say. Um, There's so many people that want this one thing. So if you're not prepared to put up with the abuse or do whatever it takes, there's so many other people right behind you ready to take your position. So what it means is that the cycle 
of abuse could just continue. It's kind of sad. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And I think there are, there, are, there are definitely certain people who see the abuse as being part of the artistic process, a necessary part of the artist, as Fletcher clearly does. They would argue that it creates results. That goes into your point, Tess, about the myth of the genius and that you have to go through hell to achieve this. And I think that a lot of people do think that. I think that they do romanticise pain in terms of creating something. Yeah, and I don't know what the answer is, and it's probably different for each person. Each Maybe everyone needs something different, and some people do would need to go through this to really bring out the best in them. I, I don't know if there's, yeah, if there's an answer to it. Yeah. Or one way. What I do just want to say was my favorite part of the film was when in the end when he's playing like such a badass and Fletcher looks at him and he just mouths fuck you yes. <laughs> I don't know if you guys remember that part it was so good I was like oh yes it's amazing <laughs> I love that part I love also love the little moment where Fletcher's leaning in and he hits the symbol and the symbol almost hits Fletcher in the face yeah that's great <laughs> well a couple of points on that because we will have to wrap it up at some point but if there's anything that you really would want to say then then please do is that one Andrew deserves everything he gets in this film because I don't know if you notice it, but at the beginning, when they go and see Rafifi, the film started and him and his dad are talking. So <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, anything goes with that type. It's like, sorry, if you talk and the film started, then you deserve all the trouble that you get. Um. Also, he uh, he gives, he obviously looks down on Nicole for, you know, not having this driving passion. She's fucking Supergirl. Yes, I'm very glad that you said that because, yes, we do have to acknowledge that it's Melissa Benoist who plays his girlfriend. He dumps Supergirl. So what kind of person is that? (laughs) (laughs) Also, you don't need to like jazz to like this film, which is also very good because, um, yes, I think a little jazz goes a long way. And I've lost them. (laughs) (laughs) Was there a pun in there? No. No, 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 no. Just I don't really like jazz very much. <laughs> Sorry, I, I've, I've ended up on Melissa Benoist's Wikipedia profile. During her first semester in college, when she was learning to ride a bike, a cab backed into her and left a visible scar above her eyebrows. Is there anybody involved in this production who has not had a car accident? <laughs> I noticed her scar as well. And I thought, oh, I wonder what the story is. Yeah, I did that as well. I thought, oh, yeah, she's got like a slight dent just above her eyebrow. I wonder what that is. And now I know. It's yet another car accident. <laughs> well, there's a lot going on in this film, isn't there? So it turns out the car accident, which is a part of the film that I don't love, partly because I hate POV, oh, look, there's the truck, oh, no, it's hitting us, shots. But it turns out apparently that was the most realistic part of the whole thing. Yeah. It's the, <laughs> actually, one thing that I really liked about this film is that it's shot in those very rich earth tones that all the inspirational teacher films like Dead Poet Society and Mr. Holland's Opus are shot in that way as well. And he seems to be commenting on the fact this is the way that we shoot these films. But the inspirational teacher in this film is the devil and he's going to tear your soul out of you. But we're going to keep that very warm earth tone look about the film. Yeah, he he was very much like a, a classic villain all in black so focused on his craft he you know he couldn't even dress in colors yeah steve jobs type character and then i felt everything else around him was brown it was like he was all in black and then everything else had like very brown tones he's got the dedicated hat stand in the rehearsal space Hmm. like the one where he puts his hat and his coat and clearly nobody else is allowed to fucking touch it I, I, one thing I really like about is the music's by Justin Hurwitz, who I think went to college with Damien Chazelle and, is the, and obviously did the music for La La Land and First Man. But like the scene where 
Andrew uh, Neyman is is looking through the window at Fletcher taking that class before he's been invited to join it. And there's like a dramatic sting in that. But obviously the the uh, the, the music that's playing is coming from the classroom. So it's providing a uh, what's the, a diegetic soundtrack mm. yeah. to a dramatic moment. One thing I really like about that scene is that Fletcher senses someone's there, which again, like, yeah, ties into the supernatural element of this guy and gives him the ultimate evil very, very quickly. And he tries to duck away. Tess, to your point that it's all brown in the classroom, again, that suggests Earth and it's underground and that's where vampires sleep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Well, before we wrap up, is there anything else that anyone wants to say about Whiplash? I'm so, so glad it holds up. Yeah, this was a film that Rob absolutely adored and then was quite worried that it would be shit on a second, or not, wouldn't be quite as good on a second viewing. And we all have films like that, where it's like that first viewing, so brilliant, you're a bit scared to go back to it. Yeah, I just didn't see how it could match up, but it, but it, but it's still really, really, really good. Yeah, I kind of wondered, I saw La La Land so, so long ago now. I was trying to link the two and see the similarities between the two. And I guess obviously music is one, but music is treated in such a different way between each one. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that. I can't quite remember La La Land. Just made me want to watch it though. Well, I think La La Land's a much more, I think it's much more sort of, it has a much more romantic approach to music in terms of you don't finish that film thinking, oh God, I, I never want to be involved in anything remotely creative ever. <laughs> um, uh, also, I think Damien Chazelle made Whiplash because he couldn't get La La Land made. Because obviously La La Land has got like the budget, like, he's got like 10 times the budget. Hmm. Um, I I prefer Whiplash as a film, but I, still, I do really like La La Land. I haven't seen it. I think I saw it twice the year it came out and haven't seen it since then. Probably worth another look. I went into La La Land with really high expectations and then... I think my viewing of it suffered a little because of that, because I kind of was a little bit underwhelmed. But it's the kind of movie I maybe want to watch again to see to see what I think of it now. Well, it'd be interesting to talk to you after that to see what you think, because I watched La La Land, and it was at the LFF, and Whiplash had gone down so well at the London Film Festival the year before, yeah, a couple of years before, that there was a real queue to get in and not everyone got in and um, and we were yeah, amongst the last people to get in, but we got in and I had a great experience watching the film. And then when I watched it again, it was that thing that Rob was fearing about Whiplash. There was a real drop-off in terms of, of how good I thought it was and also just how kind of realistic it is in terms of the character motivations and also the character ending. I think that um, it doesn't hold up as well as Whiplash or as well as First Man, I don't think. It's a very light confection and it has some really, really nice moments in it, but it isn't the film that Whiplash is. Yeah, agreed. When you say light confection, I think that's uh, that's how I felt about it as well. Yeah. Didn't have like enough meat to it. It was beautiful. I remember thinking, oh, this is, you know, beautiful and lovely music and dancing. And all I can remember is that scene with Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone and everything's very green and they're like having a difficult conversation in their flat or something with very green lighting and it was all very intense. And that's all I can remember is opening scene, dancing on cars and then one emotional scene. But yeah, I need to watch it again. Yeah. I really like their first dance number together. What a waste of a lovely night when they're up on the hilltop together. Is that the classic one with the bench? Yes. Mm. 
See, I kind of think I could go back and watch a Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers film to see this done absolutely brilliantly. And there's a certain charm to the slightly rough way that they're dancing. I think that ultimately that doesn't age as well as watching something like Top Hat, where it's like, this is just just a miracle of movement. Maybe if only they'd been abused more on set. They, uh... Do you know what? In jest, there is a lot of truth. I think that they should have been screamed at and told that they're worth the scum. And then Emma Stone might have been able to dance a bit better. But she still won the Oscar for it, so there you go. And uh, and didn't the film win the best picture that year as well? So that's good, isn't it? No, wasn't that the one with Moonlight? Yes, it was, yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> You're making a joke. <laughs> you can cut that part out. <laughs> sorry, my sense of humour is sometimes so dry, it is literally parched. It's, uh, it's, it's just because I can't see your face, Rob. It's, that's, that's the only reason. Couldn't see the smirk on my face. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we should do Moonlight as the next one. Yeah, because Moonlight is another film that actually it didn't make my top 10 and then I did a revised top 10 list and it did make it. So Moonlight is also in my top 10. Yes, it is. That could be one to uh, to revisit because I only watched it once and thought that was good. Yep, it really liked it. Don't quite see how that was a masterpiece. Really? Oh, I I definitely want to watch it again because it's just stood out as one of the best things I've ever seen. And then it was totally ruined because I was watching it in, what was it? I think it was at a Curzon in Wimbledon. And um, this really awkward guy needed to get up like right towards the end. And it was that scene between the two of them, I think, in the apartment where it's like the crucial scene and they're having that conversation. And this guy was like, realized quite quickly that the film was about to end and this was the most important part. So he just kind of halfway through getting up in the middle of the aisle, just started then lingering at the side <laughs> and then walking down one step every 30 seconds to get to the door. <laughs> he wasn't sure if he should leave or not. And because in Curzon, it's such a small theater, <laughs> everyone was just looking at him like, what are you doing? Are you going to leave or are you going to stay? And then I completely, like, I feel like I missed the, yeah, the, spell. the important ending. Yes, the spell was broken. Ah, So I need to watch it again. Obviously, we are all looking forward to when the cinemas reopen that there are stories like that and we've all got at least two of them where it's like mm. <laughs> I do uh, I just I think there are some things about watching a film at home that sometimes well you can control the audience a lot better because that's what that would have wound me up an absolute treat that would have like just go mate go <laughs> aye, aye, aye. well Moonlight would be a good one to do if we haven't scared you off appearing again no it's been lovely it's been so good just uh just chatting um, about a film for so long. Um, I hope I've, I've been an okay uh, audience member. Audience member, that's not the right word. <laughs> Sorry, I think I'm losing losing my ability to speak as, as the podcast goes on. You've been a splendid guest. <laughs> guest, that's the word. Did it make either of you want to be a drummer? It kind of made me want to be a drummer. Definitely. No, it made me... It made me wish I was that good at something, but it also made me realise what it takes to get there, then I'm okay. (laughs) I just liked how physical it looked. Like, man, was he sweating in some of those scenes? He was using his whole body and he was so into it. He looked like he was having way more fun than anyone else. If I had to pick up an instrument, I think I would want it to be drums. Well, it's interesting that I've always liked the drums because I think there's such a primal nature to drums. And when you get like a mm. really good yeah, drum beat, it's like, yes, let's invade another country. It's <laughs> something so kind of like... 
Which section of the orchestra did Fletcher yell least at? I want to be in that part. <laughs> it was the piano player. Yeah, I don't think the piano player ever gets... And of course, he plays a piano. Oh, there's something in that for sure. You see, I, you know, actually, I would genuinely love to be able to play piano, but again, my, my complete lack of any coordination <laughs> has so far proven a hindrance to my picking up an instrument. <laughs> or in the case of a piano, not picking up an instrument. Everyone else looked uh, so quaint. I felt like it made all the other instruments, yeah, just seem very sweet compared to the drums. This huge kit that just makes this huge noise, um, this wall of sound. I think I'm too old to play the drums because it's a hugely physical thing, as you said. It, it puts a lot of stress on your body. And to go back to Phil Collins, his spine has basically dissolved after years and years of drumming <gasps> to the point where he now looks so ill all the time when he wears a brace and stuff like that. But he tours and his son is the drummer. So he's basically passing on the family curse. <laughs> Man hands on misery to man. Yeah, that's right. But I was thinking about the piano, thinking I'd love to be able to play the piano. Just so I can be like Fletcher, not really. <laughs> I'm just Googling Phil Collins now to try to see what you're talking about with his spine. Yeah, if you look at a recent picture of Phil, and I think now when he performs, he sits down because he can't stand up for long periods of time. It was uh, basically the drums wow. gave him his fortune, but it seems to be like a Faustian pact that they came to collect with his uh, physical well-being uh, in the past five years. Goodness me, what you sacrifice for your craft and to be a genius. Yes. It's often been said about this pod. Yes, indeed. <laughs> the things we sacrifice to bring these pearls of wisdom to our hungry, hungry audience. <laughs> anyway, on that note, Tess, thank you very much for agreeing to be on. It's been an absolute blast. Thanks. I'm happy any time you want to have me on again. <laughs> it's been nice to use your word. <laughs> we will be shining a tea into the sky. <laughs> and Rob, cheers as always. And happy belated birthday. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Happy belated birthday. It was Rob's birthday yesterday. When you said that drumming is a young man's game, it's like, oh, I'm no longer eligible then. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> whatever. That's me later this year. Oh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Wait until you get to my advanced years. Then you know what real pain is. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, on that note, yes, happy belated birthday. Cheers, guys, for a wonderful discussion about Whiplash. And we will talk to you again very, very soon. Talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Talk to you soon. Cue Crash of Symbols. (laughs) 